Well, during the course of this year, we've been going on a journey um, with the Israelites um, out of Egypt into the wilderness, um, and we've uh, come to the end of that series that we're going to be looking at as we look at Exodus chapter 32. We're also looking at the Ten Commandments during some of the evening services. We still have three commandments to go. So we're not quite out of uh, Exodus yet. And if you'd like to join us in uh, the evening services, then you can catch up on those. But as I say, we're going to be looking at Exodus uh, 32 this morning. So if you'd like to turn with me in your Bibles, please. It's uh, page 86. And in my Bible, it's entitled The Golden Calf, starting at uh, verse 1. When the people saw that Moses was so long in coming down from the mountain, they gathered round Aaron and said, Come, make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Aaron answered them, Take off the gold earrings that your wives, your sons and your daughters are wearing and bring them to me. So all the people took off their earrings and brought them to Aaron. He took what they handed him and made it into an idol cast in the shape of a calf, fashioning it with a tool. Then they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar in front of the calf and announced, Tomorrow there will be a festival to the Lord. So the next day the people rose early and sacrificed burnt offerings and presented fellowship offerings. Afterwards, they sat down to eat and drink and got up to indulge in revelry. Then the Lord said to Moses, Go down, because your people, whom you brought up out of Egypt, have become corrupt. They've been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They've bowed down to it and sacrificed to it and have said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. I've seen these people, the Lord said to Moses, and they are a stiff-necked people. Now leave me alone, so that my anger may burn against them, and that I may destroy them. Then I will make you into a great nation. But Moses sought the favor of the Lord, his God. O Lord, he said, why should your anger burn against your people, whom you brought out of Egypt, with great power and a mighty hand. Why should the Egyptians say it was with evil intent that he brought them out, to kill them in the mountain and to wipe them off the face of the earth? Turn from your fierce anger, relent, and do not bring disaster on your people. Remember your servants Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, to whom you swore by your own self, I will make your descendants as numerous as as the stars in the sky, and I will give your descendants all the land I promised them, and it will be their inheritance forever. Then the Lord relented and did not bring on his people the disaster he threatened. Moses turned and went down the mountain with the two tablets of the testimonies in his hands. They were inscribed on both sides, front and back. The tablets were the work of God. The writing was the writing of God, engraved on the tablets. When Joshua heard the noise of the people shouting, he said to Moses, There is sound of war in the camp. Moses replied, It's not the sound of victory, it's not the sound of defeat, it's the sound of singing that I hear. When Moses approached the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, 
His anger burned, and he threw the tablets out of his hands, breaking them to pieces at the foot of the mountain. And he took the calf they had made and burnt it in the fire. Then he ground it to powder, scattered it on the water, and made the Israelites drink it. He said to Aaron, What did these people do to you that you led them into such great sin? Don't be angry, my lord, Aaron answered. You know how prone these people are to evil. They said to me, Make us gods who will go before us. As for this fellow Moses who brought us up out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. So I told them, Whoever has any gold, jewelry, take it off. Then they gave me the gold, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. We'll leave it there. <clears throat> I could uh, have the PowerPoint, please, John. I wonder how good are you at waiting? I found a few interesting statistics on the, uh, on the internet. Apparently, we spend six months of our lives standing in queues. We spend 20 weeks on hold whilst on the telephone. We spend 653 hours waiting for trains. And apparently, it takes 136 days for women to get ready to go out. Contrast that with 46 days that it takes men to get ready to go out. And it would seem that men spend 90 days waiting for women to be ready to get out. I wonder, how patient are you? Are you the kind of person that when you run into a traffic jam... You just sit there and get more and more irate at the time that's being wasted. Or are you, like my wife, somebody who goes, do you know what, I'll head off down this road and I'll go down there and round here and I'll eventually miss the traffic jam. I don't know, whenever I've tried that, I always end up taking longer than if I'd actually been patient and waited in the traffic jam. It's always that infuriating moment when as you pull back onto the main road going, yeah, I've made it, and there's the car that you're waiting behind in front of you. We see here the Israelites being asked to wait for Moses whilst he went up the mountain to meet with God. It was only 40 days since they had promised to God that they would keep his commandments. Forty short days between them bowing down to God and saying, we accept the commands that you give us, we want to have you as our God, to a situation where they say, where's this Moses guy? We need another God. Come, let us make us gods. This is a powerful and sobering chapter that has many relevant messages for our world today. Let's wind the clock back to what the Israelites have experienced. God released them from slavery in Egypt. With miraculous plagues, he persuaded Pharaoh to let the Israelites go. He led the Israelites to the Red Sea, where miraculously the sea was parted to allow the Israelites to go through and the waves crushed back and killed the Egyptian army. 
he miraculously provided sustenance and water for them in the, in the, uh, in the wilderness. He miraculously provided a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night to lead the Israelites to where God wanted them to go. And now the Israelites are camped at the base of the mountain and all around they can see the cloud of the presence of God and they can hear the rumblings of thunder. They're kind of without excuse, I would suggest. God has made himself very, very evident to them. But Moses goes off up the mountain, and if we'd uh, kind of read back Exodus 24, we would have seen Moses sets out with, his, with Joshua, his assistant, and Moses went up on the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Aaron and her are with you, and anyone involved in any dispute can go to them. Moses was going up the mountain to meet with God. He was taking uh, his uh, kind of um, sidekick Joshua with him, but he was leaving Aaron, the kind of high priest in waiting, in charge, and any problems would be taken to them. Now, I wonder, what had happened during this 40 days that Moses was up the mountain with Joshua? We're not told, but I guess we get a bit of a hint as to what happens when these people come and meet with Aaron. They seem to have worked out exactly what they're going to say to Aaron. They're not coming to Aaron with a dispute or a question or some advice. They're coming to tell Aaron what they want. So no doubt during those 40 days, they'd been kind of grumbling they have a kind of history of that, don't they? No doubt they've been plotting. No doubt they've been working out what they wanted to say. I'm almost certain that what they were not doing during those 40 days was worshipping God. And the question I would ask of the Israelites and of us, who were they following? Who are we following? You see, the Israelites give themselves away when they say, as for this guy Moses, who led us out of Egypt, we don't know what's happened to him. Who were they following? It wasn't God. It was Moses. You know, we live in a kind of pretty directionless world where generally people are looking for guidance and leadership. They're looking for role models. They're looking for people who they can look up to to give them direction, maybe give them hope, um, maybe give them meaning in their lives. I walked in on my daughters uh, watching uh, X Factor the other week. I don't watch it. I hasten to add. I can't stand it. I do watch some pretty bizarre programs, but not that one. Um, And the camera panned to the audience as they announced who was being ejected from, uh, from the running for um, X Factor. And as this particular boy group was uh, announced as not making it through, 
These girls in the audience were in floods of tears. Now, this boy band was a band that had been completely unheard of three, four, five weeks ago. And they will never be heard of again. And yet these girls were in floods of tears because their heroes were being ejected. What a fickle world we live in. And I think it just shows to us how important it is that we don't put trust in humans as our leaders. We put trust in God. It was God that led the Israelites out of Egypt, but the Israelites were following Moses, not God. And look what happened. Jesus warns us many times in uh, the Bible. In Matthew, for example, he says, there will be false Christs and false prophets who will appear and perform great signs and miracles that will even deceive the elect, if that were possible, later on. And at that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other. Many false prophets will appear and deceive many people. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. But he who stands firm to the end will be saved. The Israelites weren't standing firm. They put their trust in Moses, not in God. So I ask the question, what is it that drives our agenda? Who are we following? Who do we look to for guidance and inspiration? Why is it that we come to church? Do we come to hear a a kind of entertaining sermon? And do we come to hear our um, favorite songs being sung? Do we come to meet our friends? Do you know what? There's absolutely nothing wrong with all that. But do we come to meet God? Is it God that we're looking for to speak to us? I think often we fall into a trap where we kind of expect... um, humans to lead us to that place of intimacy, not allow God to work through us to take us to that place of intimacy with him. You see, what happens when our leaders disappear? What happens when they're no longer there to kind of intercede for us and and give us direction? I think that's a sobering word for us as we're looking for a new pastor I hope that you feel that we're not leaderless here. But, you know, there's a danger that people look to the pastor as somebody who's really special, and they are special, don't get me wrong, but they're following him rather than following God. And in this time of interregnum, we need, as a congregation, as a people of God, to make sure we are following him and him only. So, from idle time to idle time. The people were getting restless. And in the absence, they thought of clear instruction from God. They thought, well, we'll make up our own rules. And do you know what? Old habits die hard. It's no coincidence that the idol that was made was in the shape of a calf. That would have been a very familiar god in Egypt. Notice also that they, the Israelites said to Aaron, 
let us make gods plural. Egypt was a polytheistic uh, nation, a nation that worshipped many, many gods. And so the Israelites had fallen back into the ways of the world that they had encountered in Egypt. How easy is it for us to fall back into the ways of the world when we take our eyes off God? Now notice um, in in the texts that it's described that the people came and gathered round Aaron. I wonder who those people were. How many Israelites do you think there were encamped around the mountain? It doesn't actually say explicitly, but by my reckoning, if you look back earlier in Exodus, there was around about 600,000 men besides the women and the children and some other hangers-on, which could well have been Egyptians that had come to, uh, um, come to faith in God. So I reckon there must have been somewhere between two and three million Israelites encamped around the mountain. That is no small number to gather around one man. So I would suggest that actually there were just quite a few people that gathered around Aaron to try and express their will and push their will onto Aaron. The message behind this is that we have to be careful about whose voice we listen to. The voice of the minority, even though it might be a vocal minority, is not necessarily right. We need to test everything that we hear with the word of God. And do you know what? If Aaron had been a wise leader, the easiest thing for him to do was to say, hmm, what are these people telling me? Is it consistent with the word of God? Well, what were the commandments that God gave that... We should have no other gods but God Almighty. That we should make no idols and bow down to them. Hmm, that kind of suggests that what the people are asking me to do is not the right thing. But what did he do? He buckled under pressure. And he said, come on then, give me your uh, gold earrings. Now if you kind of read back a little bit, a few chapters, the gold that these um, Israelites had probably had been plundered from uh, uh, Egypt, not plundered in a kind of negative way, but it was the uh, um, stuff that had come from Egypt that the Egyptians had said, here, take this, you know, go, be on your way, almost as an encouragement for them to get out of the land. And they had earmarked that as gold that was going to be used to decorate the tabernacle. And yet, what are they using it here for? They're using it to make an idol. And the interesting thing is, for me, that when you look at what goes on here, when they're asked to give up their gold, do they do it reluctantly? No, they can't wait to hand it over to Aaron. You know, here's a people that all the time have been grumbling about what God's asked them to do. And yet the minute they feel they're in control and they're driving the agenda, they can't give things uh, away quickly enough. And when Aaron suggests that they get up early in the next, the next day to have a, a celebratory uh, worship, 
they all get up and they do it. Whereas all the time before, they'd been grumbling about what God wanted them to do and say, oh, we'd be better off back in Egypt. Isn't it interesting that when we're kind of running our own agendas, actually nothing's too hard. Nothing's too much in terms of the way we spend our time, the way we spend our money. I think there's a big lesson here for us in terms of the attitudes that we have in whether we give God of our best or whether we give him second best. Third thing, the objects that they used to make the golden calf were objects of vanity. They were decorations. Things made to, uh, intended to make you look good. How easy is it for us to turn objects of vanity into our own gods? Beware that. Then the really interesting thing is that how easy is it for Aaron to try and take this immense sin that he has committed in building an idol that the people can worship God and then saying, do you know what, actually, let's have a, let's have a time of worship of God. Let's make it a festival to the Lord, almost kind of justifying the fact that she hadn't created this idol at all. How mistaken he was and how easy is it for us to justify our worship by saying, do you know what, I'm doing it in God's name. I'm doing this for the Lord. Are we really? Are we really following what God is asking us to do? I'm not saying we're not. I'm just saying that's a question we should be asking ourselves. Or are we following our own vain desires? I would ask the question, what's your idol? And what is an idol? An idol is something that takes the place of God, something where you spend more time and more energy on than you do in your relationship with God. I would humbly suggest that all of us are guilty of having idols to a greater or lesser extent. Whether that be our jobs, our money, our positions, our relationships, our own personal desires. What are our idols? If there's anything that takes the position of God, I think you should look at that very carefully. If there are things that keep you away from worshipping God, things that keep you from coming to church, I would question whether that is an idol. I put this picture up. I don't know if you, anybody recognizes that. That's the, uh, the bull on Wall Street. I would suggest this represents the single biggest idol that we have in this world today. And I guess it's no coincidence that it's a bull calf. And one that looks kind of golden as well. God says in his word that the love of money is a root of all evil. The love of money is an idol that takes us away from God and stops us in true worship. So how is it that we can end up, as Christians, getting golden calves in our lives? How does it happen? First thing, just to recap, 
we look at men instead of God. <coughs> Secondly, we allow things to keep us away from worship and fellowship. The minute the Israelites stopped worshiping God, didn't take them long, 40 days. If we stop serving God, if we stop looking for things that we can do for God as he's called us to in this place and time, that's a place where we can start getting golden calves in our lives. Revelation 3.18 says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire. Don't waste your time on earthly things. So, the kind of story shifts up to the mountain where God is speaking with Moses. And God sees what's going on and is not best pleased. And there are consequences of sin. And God says to Moses that he is going to destroy the people. And actually, he's going to change his plan and that no longer are these people going to be his chosen people that he's going to lead into the promised land. He's going to wipe them out. And actually, he's going to make Moses the start of his chosen people. He's going to change his plan from the people that he's already rescued from Egypt to be Moses is now the center and is going to be the descendant, his descendants are going to be God's chosen people. But what's Moses' reaction to this? He could have said, hey, fantastic. I'm going to be the one in charge now. I'm going to be the, uh, the main man. It's going to be uh, uh, my descendants that now are God's chosen people. He does not do that. The man that has suffered the whinging of the Israelites all along turns to God in prayer. And in prayer, he changes God's mind. What on earth is going on here? Does God change his mind? I think God knew all along what was going on here. And I think that God knew all along what he was wanting to do with Moses. Because in this one instance, Moses went from being somebody that was kind of getting earache from the Israelites non-stop to being somebody who was a personal intercessor on behalf of the Israelites. God changed Moses' character there and then. An intercessor was born. And I think that was God's plan. I don't think God changed his mind at all because actually even bringing about a, um, a people through Moses was not changing his promise Moses was a descendant of Abraham but he wanted Moses to catch God's heart for his people and bring an intercessor how we need to intercede as a church on behalf of the world that is lost that a world that is kind of driven away and distracted by so many false messages. Are we intercessors? And then, last point I want to make is, don't play down your sin. Aaron tried to uh, kind of justify what he'd done by having a, a celebration to the Lord. Right at the end, Aaron tried to make light of what had happened 
you know, that kind of bizarre statement at the end of the reading we had where Aaron said, you know, I just uh, threw the gold into the fire and out popped this calf. What a load of rubbish. He knew exactly what he was doing. And, and, you know, so often we kind of play down the seriousness of our sin, don't we? God wants us to understand the consequences. And what did Moses do? He was so irate, he recognized the seriousness of the sin. He broke the tablets of stone as a kind of symbol that the commandments had been broken. And he took the calf and he burnt it and he ground it up and he put it in to the water and he made the Israelites drink it. And what then became of their God of gold? Without being too crude, give it a couple of days and it would end up nothing better than a bit of glittery fertilizer, I would suggest. God says that we need to build with things that moth and rust and digestive systems <laughs> cannot destroy. We need to build with eternity in mind. And we cannot do that if we're clinging on to things of this world, if we're clinging on to idols, if we're clinging on to our own preferences. God says, I've got an eternal plan, an eternal purpose for you, where things won't be destroyed. As a church, we need to think through what God is calling us to do with to build with silver and gold that's refined in the fire, God's holy fire, rather than build with our own ideas. That's very much what we were seeking God's mind yesterday at our Leaders Away Day, to say what are the things that God wants us to do? How does he want us to build a little bit of his kingdom here in Lim? And as I said before, we'll share something of that. But as a membership, as a congregation, I want us to kind of understand that those plans, that vision, has to be a God-inspired vision, not a man-inspired vision. And that even though the things that we feel that God brings us to us might not be in accordance with our plans and purposes, far better to build with those. Far better to put aside our own agendas, our own thoughts, and say, God, it's all about you.